So just a few days ago, Carolyn said to me, she said, doesn't it seem that things are like really weird now? They're precarious. It seems like our world is so extra vulnerable compared to even any other time that we could reference personally. It's true that we are overwhelmed by international and national events. As far as the international stage, we have Iran, we have Gaza, Ukraine, Taiwan, North Korea. Domestically, we have the crisis at the southern border, we have inflation, we have really deep national debt, and we also have sharp divisions. But on the international stage, some people are asking, are we expecting World War III at any moment? It seems like you could make the case that it might be building toward that. So when we look at the news, when we hear it or read it, we get a reality check. In Micah chapter 6, Micah proved God's innocence and Judah, the southern kingdom, its guilt. God has only ever blessed Israel and disciplined her when she needed it. So then, what does God want from us? The individual or sample Israelite would ask, what in the world does he really expect of us? What does he want? Well, Micah reported in Micah chapter 6, verse 8, he says, He has showed you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly before your God. That's what he desires from us. He doesn't particularly need it from us, because God is independent, but this is what he desires from us. He wants us to have the kind of character that automatically produces justice, mercy, and humility. God just doesn't want heartless offerings. He wants the people of the Old Covenant to do their proper sacrifices. But he wants a changed heart more than anything else. He doesn't just want heartless offerings. He desires all of us a new behavior that is caused by a new inner self, not behavior modification, but rather inner transformation. He wants us to hear and fear him. He wants us to listen to him. That's why the subtopic to this sermon series is coming from the prophet's perspective. Listen to us. Listen and heed what we say. Because if you do, then you'll be obedient. If you don't, then it's a simple matter of calling you disobedient. And so God doesn't just want heartless offerings. He desires all of us, a new heart, a new creation. So that way we produce justice, mercy, and humility. That truly addresses our inner man, but we still have to live here in this world, in this time, and in this place. And if we pay attention to what's going on and we don't have our heads in the sand, it can really be a beatdown. I know a lot of you have just stopped listening to the news and kind of checked out. But if you ever are tempted to check in, it's not good news, generally speaking. And so Micah begins the process of closing out his prophecy to his nation and also indirectly to us. And his, his, there is an attitude shift here in chapter 7 where he's not in a very good mood. 
He's depressed. He's filled with grief. He's, he calls himself miserable. Look what he says in the first six verses here. And if you normally don't follow along in scripture, your scripture, I encourage you to do that today because I'm going to be referring back to it. So the first six verses, it says this. What misery is mine? I am like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. There is no cluster of grapes to eat, none of the early figs that I crave. The godly have been swept from the land. Not one upright man remains. All men lie in wait to shed blood. Each hunts his brother with a net. Both hands are skilled in doing evil. The ruler demands gifts. The judge accepts bribes. The powerful dictate what they desire. They all conspire together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright, worse than a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman has come, the day God visits you. Now is the time of their confusion. Hmm. Do not trust a neighbor, put no confidence in a friend, even with her who lies in your embrace. Be careful of your words. For a son dishonors his father, a daughter rises up against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the members of his own household. God is indeed... Um, Accurate in his complaint against his nation, Israel. Thoroughly accurate. Conditions are bad. Woe is me, Micah would say. Micah is personally lamenting this period of time in Israel's history. It seemed like there was a rally. It seemed like under Hezekiah there were some reforms that Israel was getting back to her roots to obey the one true God. But then Manasseh came. And he upended all of Hezekiah's positive reforms. It's just like when someone is near death and for a couple days they rally. And it seems like, well, maybe they're getting better, but then they quickly expire. And that's basically what's going on with Israel. They rallied a little bit. Under Hezekiah, he was a good king, but then came Manasseh. And he reversed all of those positive policies under Hezekiah. And so Micah was deeply disappointed with his nation. It was like fruit pickers who go expecting a good harvest and they find that everything has already been harvested and gleaned by others. And they find nothing. High expectations but low delivery. They didn't get what they wanted or expected or even what they needed for that much. Micah was disappointed with his nation. There were no moral or ethical people around, it seemed. And, of course, he's using some hyperbole here because he and the other true prophets were good men and many other men, good men and women, of course. But the overwhelming majority, the trend line seemed like it was going down. Morality was at a low point. Forget ethics. In fact, they were so skilled in corruption. In verse 3, he says that they were ambidextrous. They could... Do wickedness with either hand. It was so much a part of him. In fact, one could say in a contemporary manner that they had their PhDs in evil. They could do it and do it well and willingly. The ruler, the judge, the powerful. Verse 3 says that they wove it all together. Um, they conspired with one another. All of these powerful people, the rulers, those in politics or religion, the judges, the powerful, economically speaking, they would weave it together and conspire for their own personal gratification and benefit. The people did not have a chance. Remember, Micah is the blue-collar prophet. 
He's the populist. He's thinking of the little guy here. And he says the little guy is being oppressed like he has never been before in the grand history of Israel. In fact, he says the best people were like briars, meaning they were the ones with the thorns sticking out of them that would stick to you. Even, so even the best people, the cream of the crop, they were pains in the neck as well. And the prophets were the watchtowers in verse 4. And they too were like thorn bushes because all around me there are my colleagues who are prophets, but most of them are false prophets. They'll only tell you what you want to hear and then collect their pay. Micah, along with Isaiah and Amos, his contemporaries, they were the standouts. They were the ones who taught the whole counsel of Scripture. The good, the bad, and the ugly. The good news and the bad news. The information that would encourage you, but also the information that you needed to hear so you would have a chance at adjusting your behavior and your attitude. So very few would tell the truth. Not too much unlike our day. The best people... Even they were not that good. They caused problems too. They entangled and injured people as they were thorn bushes and briars, he calls them. In fact, sadly, even your closest relationships couldn't be trusted. This was kind of scary, reading and studying this. Verses 5 and 6, I'm going to read it again because it is kind of becoming applicable to today. Verses 5 and 6, look in your Bibles with me. It says, do not trust a neighbor, put no confidence in a friend, even with her who lies in your embrace. Be careful of your words. For a son dishonors his father, a daughter rises up against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, a man's enemies are the members of his own household. So like concentric circles, this is just like our day and age. Your neighbors, the people who are acquaintances, can't trust them. That guy that you wave to lives a couple doors down from you when he's cutting his grass or you're pulling out of your driveway and you wave to him, don't trust him. This is the, this is the, these are the conditions of Micah's day. And perhaps maybe we're even becoming like that today. Then the concentric circle tightens in a little bit. And even your friends can't trust them. Or even your own spouse, the woman that lies with you in your embrace. Um, Don't trust it. And don't trust your Alexa. Don't trust your cell phone because they might report you. (laughs) You can't trust anything because everyone is out for their own personal benefit. And we know that the times, during the times of the Nazi reign in Germany or the Soviet times in Russia, you couldn't trust anybody because even your own children would report you if you did not live according to the way the leadership of the nation wanted you to live. Or if you spoke against them, you're in big trouble, either death or imprisonment. And so all of your close relationships are suffering. Everybody was out for themselves. Everybody was living in fear. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 10. He said, For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be members of his own household. Why is that, Jesus? Shouldn't you, Jesus, shouldn't you be uniting people and pulling them together? But instead, you, with your own words, tell us that you're dividing people. And the reason is because Jesus came and gave the truth. 
He gave God's world view to the world. But mankind has a different worldview. He has the view of Babylon, that we can do it ourselves. In fact, we're so good, we're so competent, we can build our own tower to the heavens through our own skills and through our own materiel. We can do it. The spirit of secular humanism. Yeah, that's how, how well is that working out for you, humanity? You know. So yeah, this will naturally happen because um, when one nation, when one entity begins the process of invading another, there will most certainly be pushback. And that pushback, the flashpoints, are the broken relationships. And we have a lot of that today. In fact, the trend line is going like this. And we see it. We have a lot of that in our own congregation, in our own world. Families are divided because they see things so diametrically opposite. So it boils down to who are you going to be loyal to when the break point comes? Are you more concerned about what a person thinks or are you more concerned about what the living God thinks? Whose opinion matters more? That's the question that we have to essentially ask ourselves. So, all the close relationships suffered. One can easily express grief over one's own collapsing nation. Whether it be Judah, whether it be America, you look all around, you look all around, and it seems like every nation in the world, every major nation, and many smaller ones are deeply struggling. They're all having an existential crisis. And the word existential is a word that's frequently used. Last week I harped on literally. This week I'm going to say existential. Existential is a problem of your own making. See, So the, 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 the usage is important here because a lot of these countries are having internal problems. It used to be that you'd have a United Nation and um, then... What would happen is you get a threat from the outside. That's typical. But all of these major nations are having um, on the brink of civil war or massive divisions, or in many cases, international wars as well. We feel hopeless. It doesn't seem like anything is currently working. After World War I, we had the League of Nations. That didn't work out too well. Then after World War II, we tried it again. Isn't that the definition of insanity, where you try the same thing over and over again and expect different results? And so far, the UN has been helpful in a couple situations, to be honest, but overall it is not accomplishing its charter. There is no man-made solution that is long-term. In fact, we are in the business, humanity is in the business of destroying nations. It seems like every nation, every empire has an expiration date. So when we were going through Revelation chapter 18... And we read about the destruction of the system, not just the nation, but the system known as Babylon, which still exists. I shared some statistics with you or some observations from a British sociologist who wrote during the 1930s. And this man, J.D. Unwin, studied 80 empires and nations. And he said that 
the destruction of all of these large nations or empires that had common points, and that every one of them would be gone within 75 years once the majority of the population accepted these ideas. One, the rejection of heterosexual monogamy. Secondly, the rejection of rational thought. Thirdly, the rejection of a belief in a deity, meaning we were accountable to someone much bigger than ourselves. Not necessarily the God of the Bible, but just in a deity that produces some sort of moral system. And so once those three beliefs were scrapped, these nations had about two generations left, 75 years, which would ultimately lead to complete societal collapse. In the 18th century, there was a man named Edward Gibbon, and in 1788, he wrote The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. And these were his five basic reasons why that great civilization withered and died, the Roman Empire. The first one was the undermining of the dignity and sanctity of the home, which is the basis of all human societies. The second observation is higher and higher taxes, the spending of public money for free bread and circuses. That's what he calls something frivolous, a circus. It still applies to today. The mad craze for pleasure, sports becoming every year more exciting, more brutal, more immoral. Fourthly, the building of great armaments when the real enemy was within the decay of individual responsibility. That's what really brought them down. Not external threats, because they were so powerful. They had the best militaries, but yet they decayed from within because people just rejected the idea of individual responsibility wholesale. Fifth, the decay of religion. Faith fading into mere form, losing touch with life, losing power to guide the people and giving them some moral framework. Those were the observations that he made this past week. Troy and I were discussing this, and he provided a good quote from Saladin, who is a um, 12th century Muslim military leader who fought against the Crusaders. And he certainly wouldn't be seeing things from our worldview, but even a broken clock is right twice a day. And Saladin provided this quote. He says, if you want to destroy any nation without a war, then make adultery or nudity common in the young generation. And before you know it, that empire or nation will just collapse from within. So despite the inevitable calamity of Micah's nation, Micah was determined to do two things really well. He was determined to be expectant and also to be patient. That was his strategy in the response to the eventual collapse of his nation. First, there would be the conquest of the northern tribes of Israel, and then about 140 years later, his own nation, Judah, would expire. He was determined to be expectant and be patient. Look what verse 7 says. He says, but as for me after he makes all these observations about his culture, about his country, 
He says, but as for me, I watch and hope for the Lord. I wait for God, my Savior, and my God will hear me. I have an expectation. God, I can't wait to see what you're going to do with this. I don't wring my hands and have sweaty palms, elevated heartbeat, loss of sleep. I patiently wait for you with expectation about what you will do. Why? Well, because I know you and I know what you're promising us. And so I put my hope in you and your plan. And so he has an ultimate strong hope. His enemies see him and they gloat. And he says that his Lord is his light. So it's a light, like we sang about before, a light shining in the darkness. Um, the darkness will never overcome the light. The light always wins when those two come together. The light always wins. Just a fact of physics. Look what verse 8 says. It says, Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. My hope is in the character of God because God will discipline me. Why? Because I know him as a really good father. And he'll course correct me. God will be my advocate. He will leave the darkness of his current circumstances and see the justice of God. That is what it is all about. Seeing all of this in context. Seeing it through the rearview mirror, even though it hasn't happened yet. It's like it's so solid. It's so certain. It's so prophesied that it's almost like it's already happened. And so I'm going to borrow some hope from the future. Because I know God and I know his plans. And he's got a thousand percent batting average. He will always come through with what he has promised us. And then verse 10 says, then. There's that great conjunction, if you call it that. Verse 10. Then, this is what's going to happen. Then my enemy will see it and will be covered with shame. She who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will see her downfall. Even now, she will be trampled underfoot like mire in the streets. Justice will be done, and the ones who mock will be trampled. Because that's what we say. How come these people aren't in prison yet? How come these people, those people haven't been indicted yet? How come those people haven't been impeached yet? And we complain that it seems like the wicked are the ones who thrive and the righteous are the ones who are oppressed. And here it is again and again and again, this, this tension, this question. And the theological word is theodicy. Why do bad things seem to happen to good people? And why are the unrighteous not judged? Well, they will be. Our Timing is just a little bit off. But again and again, the Bible says those people will pay for what they have done. You just need to be patient and you need to endure and you need to be patient with expectation. God, I can't wait to see what you're going to do with this. Justice will be done. And so Micah shifted his focus. This is an important pivot here in verse 7. Don't miss it. He shifts his focus from looking around him to seeing his circumstances and accurately and um, 
completely uh, expressing his feelings about what it's doing to him. It's just really destroying him inside. But he doesn't stay there. See, So it's not wrong to observe. It's not wrong to listen to the news. It's not wrong to watch it and read it. But don't stay there. What does he do? Well, he lifts his eyes up. He lifts his eyes up. He looks up. He shifts his focus from his circumstances to what God is doing and what God promised. Verse 7 says that he watched. And the Hebrew word is safa, which means um, to look or wait expectantly. Someone wrote that as a watchman observes every shadow and listens to every night sound, so the godly man or woman looks for every evidence of God's working. He's an, he or she is an observer, a watcher, an expectant, patient observer of what God is doing and attributing things to the work of God. He's busy, he's busy, he's busy. He doesn't do things the way we think. That is his M.O., my friends. He consistently does Things differently than what we expect, but yet he accomplishes the goals that we that we need. If there's one thing I've learned about my spiritual life and the way God's work, God, God works, is he always accomplishes the goal, but the way to get there, totally unexpected. That's where he's not predictable. So as a watchman observes every shadow and listens to every night sound, so the godly man or woman looks for every evidence of God's working. To close one's eyes to the working of God, no matter how small the evidence may be, is to open the door to despair. But he's working. He's very busy. He's working 24-7. You know, and you know the most obvious, the first place to go to answer the question, what in the world is God doing? It's to look at yourself. You know, and you can hasten that change and that transformation. And you, then your eyes, your spiritual eyes will open even more completely and see what God is doing elsewhere apart from you. So we need to think of God and his attributes more and be less obsessed with what is around us. Although we're called to do both, but one has dominance over the other, meaning still look around, analyze, observe, see the condition of our world. Don't keep your head in the sand, but then don't stay there. Continually look up. Because verse 9, and it says this here, it says, Because I have sinned, because I have sinned against him, I will bear the Lord's wrath until he pleads my case and establishes my right. Micah's talking first person here. Micah, what have you done to sin? Well, Micah really hasn't done any overt sin. He doesn't report anything. In fact, his attitude seems to be really good. But yet, the Israelite mindset, the Hebrew worldview says, hey, I'm part of a group. I'm not just an individual. And though that even though he isn't personally sinning, he's part of a group that is. And so he counts it for himself. So he pleads, but God will plead my case. This is Christ's role as our high priest, who was our defense attorney, as the slanderer who is Satan accuses us. Jesus is our advocate in real time. Jesus is defending us as Satan continually accuses us. That's happening right now as we sit here. 
You're being accused. You're being slandered. There are half lies and total lies and maybe even some truths that are being leveled against you and me. But Jesus is our high priest. You and I need him to be our high priest. We need that work. So if you think that Jesus has, he's done everything for our salvation, that's for sure. But he is very much still engaged in the spiritual realm, advocating for us. And that is how Micah sees God acting as well. And so one can have hope because of the character of God, because of who he is and what he does for us. That's how we can have hope. It's legitimate to grieve over the condition of our world, but then we also need to look up and we need to see what God is doing and who he is. He is our vindicator, as Micah reports him. He is our redeemer. He is our advocate. He is our father who will course correct us because he's such a good father. He is our sovereign. And he's also our savior as well. That's what he calls him. He calls him our savior. And of course, now what Micah is referring to him as our savior is in a physical sense. But for us, he's very much our savior in a spiritual sense. He's literally our savior. He saved us from going to our final destiny of eternal separation from the source of all love and life and light. And now he has reconciled us to himself. He is our Savior. He's given us forgiveness. He's given us the righteousness that we need. And how do we gain that gift? Well, it's very simple. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Trust in him. Trust in what Jesus has done for you. And you will be given life for the first time in your existence. Physical life you've already had, but spiritual life will be given to you. You'll be born again. So he is very much our Savior. And so God is all of these things, our Savior, our Sovereign, our Father, our Advocate, our Vindicator, our Redeemer. So we can have a reasonable hope, not a pie-in-the-sky hope, but very much a reasonable, thought-out, evidenced hope because of the character of God. But that's not all. Micah grieved, was genuinely sad, but those feelings were regulated by even greater emotions for things that hadn't happened yet. So he was grieving. But then, that was maybe on this level. And he thought about the character of God. And then on top of that even, there's icing on the cake. Because not only do we just have the character of God, we also have his expressed plan for us. So his emotions uh, regarding the state of his world were here. But then his emotions regarding the future state were up here. They were even more heightened. He was even more thoroughly excited and expectant about what would happen in the future compared to what he was currently experiencing. Look at verse 11 through 13 in chapter 7. Micah says this, he says, The day for building your walls will come. The day for extending your boundaries. In that day, people will come to you from Syria and the cities of Egypt, even from Egypt to the Euphrates. And from sea to sea, from mountain to mountain, the earth 
will become desolate because of its inhabitants as a result of their deeds. The Old Testament, in fact, the New Testament too, but the Old Testament talks a lot about this future period of time known as the day. The Hebrew word is yom for day. Sometimes it means a literal 24 hours. Sometimes it means a period of time. The Old Testament talks a lot about different days of the Lord, and I call those lowercase d, days of the Lord. And very simple to remember, they always contain two big elements. One, the protection of God's people. The second element of the days of the Lord are the judgment of God's enemies. Protection for God's people and the judgment of God's enemies. There were, so there were lots of small d days of the Lord. But then there is what I call the capital D day of the Lord. And that will be at a future time. This is what probably about a quarter of the Old Testament refers to. About the period known as the tribulation and also, most importantly, the millennial period where God's people are restored and blessed. And Israel is given all of the promises that God had promised them. And the fulfillment of those promises will take place in that thousand-year reign of Christ. God's enemies will be judged in the seven-year tribulation period. They'll also be judged at the end. But yet, in this 1,007-year period, will be the big D day of the Lord. That is what Micah is referring to here in verses 11 through 13. He's just giving us three quick little characteristics of this. We go to other, many other places in the Old Testament to learn more about individual characteristics of the millennial period. But here he just gives three, very briefly. Three things will happen. First of all, Judah will be rebuilt. He makes some references to walls, and that's not walls around the city. In fact, the Hebrew word that's used there is walls around the vineyard, meaning the vineyard was a really important part of Hebrew agriculture because that's where you got your grapes, where you got your wine, where you got your grape juice from, and that was sustenance because you couldn't really trust the water, but you could trust the grape juice and the wine. And so the vineyard was really important. And so if your walls are being rebuilt around your vineyards, those are good times. And so Israel, or Judah rather, will be rebuilt. Israel will get the land that God had promised to her. And so in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 10, it says, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim, that's the northern part of Israel, and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. Because this will be a time of peace. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend. Get this. Not only do we have this in Micah chapter 7, but we have it here in Zechariah chapter 9. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This is exactly the land that God promised to Israel in Genesis chapter 15. That has never happened yet, but will. That's what Micah's talking about. That's what Zechariah chapter 9 and many other places in the Old Testament as well. It'll go sea to sea, mountain to mountain, and it does that. It goes from the Persian Gulf to the Red Sea to the Mediterranean Sea. That promise will most certainly be fulfilled. Judah will be rebuilt. Israel will get the land that God promised to her. In fact, the second characteristic here 
is that people from all nations will come to Judah. That's another thing that will happen among many things in the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ. Isaiah chapter 19 tells us some information about that. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. The Assyrians will go to Egypt, and the Egyptians will come to Assyria. The Egyptians and the Assyrians will worship together. In that day, Israel will be the third. So it's almost like a triangle point. Along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt. My people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. Why? Well, because Israel will be the centerpiece. And sure enough, we've got a little bit of the Assyrian Empire on the northeast there. You've got Egypt, part of Egypt included, and of course, Israel at the center. And so all these things fall perfectly into alignment. It doesn't take much creativity to get that. So what are the three things that Micah refers to and gives characteristics on the millennial period or the day of the Lord, the capital big D day of the Lord. First of all, Israel, Judah will be rebuilt. They'll get their land. Secondly, people from all nations will come to Judah. There will be other nations. There will be other kings, Revelation reports, but Israel will be the center. But people from all nations will come to Judah. And then the third characteristic is that the nations will be desolate. And that certainly is fulfilled in the tribulation period. So these things are not necessarily happening in chronological order, but yet they are part and parcel. They are characteristic of this future kingdom, this future period of time and place that God will bless Israel with. The day of the Lord most likely includes the tribulation as well as the millennium and most likely a thousand seven years. So one can have hope because of the plans of God. Micah covers it all here. Tells us about the horizontal, about what's going around on around us. And then he gives us the solution. He tracks his own spiritual experience that he pretty accurately reports what's going on around him and is grieved about it. But then he doesn't stay there. He looks up. And he sees the character and the plans of God and his grief and his misery is replaced with a reasonable and effective hope. He borrows some hope from the future and it affects not just his brain, not just his mind, but it also affects his soul. And his countenance is adjusted and changed as a result. You and I can have hope because of who God is and the plans he has told us about. The Bible reports thoroughly on both of those topics. Who God is and also what he plans to do. He just lays it out in black and white for us. This, my friends, is not our final destination. This, in reality, is not our home. We are pilgrims. We're just passing through. Don't tie ourselves too closely to this time or this place. Even though we shouldn't do the complete opposite and disregard and not care about it. Because you and I are called to be salt and light in it. And so therefore, we do have to some degree care about this temporary home. 
Because if we don't, it will massively increase human misery and human degradation. We've got to care about this place, this time, but not put our final hope in it. Paul tells us that our citizenship is in heaven, and that's certainly true. But the most really we have here for this kingdom, for this world, is a green card. And that gives us certain responsibilities and certain privileges as well. So you and I can have hope for a future time, a future place, because of who God is and the plans that he has revealed to us already. Hope is a very powerful motivator. In his book, Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl, who was the successor to Sigmund Freud in Vienna, made this argument. His proposition was this. His proposal, his submission to us is this. That the loss of hope and courage can have a deadly effect on man. As a result of his experiences in a Nazi concentration camp, Viktor Frankl contended that when a man or woman possess, no longer possesses a motive for living on any longer, no future to look forward to, he curls up in a corner and dies. Any attempt to restore a man's inner strength in camp, he wrote, had first to succeed in showing him some future goal. My friends, God has not just shown us a future goal. He also invites us now and into the future to experience his love, his mercy, his warmth, his kindness to us. So we've got it all. (laughs) Don't be dominated or obsessed by what's going on around you. Although, pay attention and do something about it too. But that is not the complete picture. The complete picture is to gain our hope from what God has promised us in the future based upon his character and his promises. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you. Thank you for who you are and who you're making us into being. Lord, we pray that you will um, give us the right, proper balance uh, to dealing with the struggles of our so sad world. And I pray, Father, that we can be a part of some of the solutions based upon your word, because those solutions are contained within. But, Father, I pray that we will put our final hope. We will put our final hope in you and the kingdom that you promise us. So thank you for being such a good, awesome, kind God. Thank you for being so communicative. Thank you for being a God who wants to have a relationship with us, to know us, uh, to be, for us to be restored to you. Thank you so much. And so thank you, Lord, that we have a reasonable hope, not a pie-in-the-sky hope, but one that is based in truth. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.